Once again, it's time for Songs You Should Know with Jimbo. And the Mixter. Yes. And still, we come to you from the Songs You Should Know World Headquarters, located in a secret bunker in central Minnesota, and from our satellite office in Branson, Minnesota. Branson, Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) Which, which, with all the flooding lately, may have... May have come to Minnesota by now. I don't know. You're probably right. Located <laughs> uh, the the central office or the uh, satellite office is located more or less in the open. Although it is more conspicuous now with all the floodwaters around it. Yep. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> we can't tell you exactly where the world headquarters is located in central Minnesota for security reasons, namely the protection of our priceless vault of classic music. But we can tell you that you can see Lake Wobegon from here. I would, I would have to say that's an eclectic mix right there. <laughs> that's what we're about, Jimbo. <laughs> and a, and a, an eclectic mix, mix for Mixter's uh, graduation year. Well, see, '84, babe. So, all right, we got a little Prince, a little Cindy Lauper, and some Rat. <laughs> some Rat, Rat and Roll, baby, Rat and Roll. You're gonna when we get to Rat, you're gonna have to tell me all about their. <laughs> <laughs> That should be <laughs> uh, why that's a song you should know. Although I do, I do agree it was a hit, you know, and and, and an interesting right. story at an interesting time. So, right, you know, uh, it, it's interesting um, finding song clips. Now, I own all kinds of print stuff, but I don't necessarily have it in a digital format or in a unprotected format, so that I can just pull clips of it, you know, for the show. So generally, I go right. out on the web and, and I try to find something. Well. Prince, more than anybody, was pretty uptight about allowing anything that he hadn't approved to be out on the web. I mean, the the DMCA takedown notices that were sent to YouTube for anything that that had Prince even as a backing track on it, you know, for somebody's home video. Wow. It's just amazing, just amazing, the, the things that got taken down. But uh, DMCA, by the way, is a digital... Mil- Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which Say says that ten that, times fast, kid. <laughs> <laughs> which, which says that if if you believe somebody is using your copyrighted material without permission, you can send a takedown notice to the person posting it, and they have to take it down, and then no harm, no foul. But if they don't take it down, you can sue them. So. Rather than just suing somebody outright, you know, you, you do have to send a takedown notice first. But uh, sure. which is it's kind of a controversial thing because sometimes people get a little overzealous in sending out takedown notices, and it turns out that their material is being used through fair use, or it's not their material material at all. Because sometimes groups own copyright to things that they didn't necessarily create themselves. And they may mistakenly believe that they own the copyright to something they don't. And so they send out a takedown notice and YouTube or whoever takes something down. And then the person that posted it gets really upset and puts it back up. And then the person that issued the takedown notice sues them. And then you go through all this expense only to find out that the person that issued the takedown notice didn't actually own rights to the material in the first place. (laughs) You're it a has, liar. It, it has happened. I'm <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. Tell me about some of the highlights from 1984, since well, you should be quite familiar with this. I am. Now. So January January 27th, Michael Jackson's hair catches fire during the filming of a Pepsi commercial, which uh, I do remember that. In uh, the the next you day, know, he he didn't he didn't sue Pepsi. Wow. See. He, I think he asked them to put up money for some sort of uh, 
Boy, I don't know if it was a burn center or something, but he asked them to put money into something else rather than suing them. Wow. And then actually the next day, uh, he wins a uh, record eight Grammy Awards. Uh, uh, it, so it wasn't the next day. Kinda... It was a month and a day. Okay. My notes say <laughs> February 28th. <laughs> well, notes... Yeah, so, so do mine, but his hair caught fire January 27th. Ah, February 20th. I can't read. Dang it. <laughs> we have we have demonstrated this multiple times. You can read, well, it's just that you can't see. <laughs> oh. That's what the problem is. Shut up. So April first, and uh I do remember this. Marvin Gaye, uh a singer, songwriter, and, and musician dies. He's shot by his own father while uh he was intervening in the argument uh, with his parents. And that, that kind of bummed me out. So, Well, I mean, legendary performer and, sure. and really, <laughs> you know, talk about influential. Um, yeah, I mean, you know. And, it, was, it was a tragedy. It was a shocker, that's for sure. So what happens? Um, May 8th, I'm a huge baseball fan too. So, But the, the, the longest game still uh, t- to this day uh, in Major League uh, Baseball history, begins at 7.30 p.m. with the Milwaukee Brewers and the Chicago White Sox. It took two days, <laughs> lasting 25 innings, with a, a total uh, play time of eight hours and six minutes. Man, that's like three games rolled into one. Yeah, that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's, that's a lot of hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> And then November 6th, uh, United States, uh, with, with the presidential election, 1984, for Ronald Reagan, defeats Walter Mondale with 59% of the popular vote, which is the highest since uh, Nixon's 61% in 72. Reagan carries 49 states in the Victoria College. Mondale wins only in his home state of where, Jimbo? Minnesota, yes, he's a Minnesota boy, and still highly respected, and he's still alive. Is he really? Yes. Well, so there you go. He he gets quoted. He gets quoted every so often. Yeah. So, all right, and then he and he won the District of Columbia, and he he barely won the District of Columbia. So, he he came he came within a whisker of uh, of only winning his home state, and that would have been it. But he's kind of a leg- legend in Minnesota. There was no way Minnesota was going was gonna to not vote for him. But. All right. Now, when I played the original sound bumps, I played a, a clip from, of Prince from the Arsenio Hall show. Um, so that's why it was a little bit noisy and a little bit, uh, you know, less sound quality. But here's, here's a little bit of the original, the original intro that, you know, is one of the most famous moments of preaching in rock and roll history, so. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. So when you call up that shrink in Beverly Hills, you know the one, Dr. Everything will be alright. Yes, the most famous bit of preaching. Well, not the most famous, perhaps, but one of the most famous bits of preaching in uh, sure in, in in rock and roll. So the song was the first on both the album and in the movie Purple Rain, which uh, you know Prince at that time could do no wrong. It was just the beginning of of really putting his career over the top, and so here he he records, writes, produces all of his own stuff. You know, along with the revolution getting uh, producing credits. But basically, you know, it was Prince in the studio. When Prince got his first his first recording gig, he insisted on recording and producing himself, doing all the mixing. 
And he had to actually do a demonstration for the record executives to prove that he could do that because he was such a young kid at the time. It was 1970, gosh, 77, 78. And uh, so they came, they came in and actually observed him doing the, the entire process of recording and mixing. And they decided, all right, let's let this kid have at it. So, um, that took a lot of, <laughs> a lot of chutzpah on his part <laughs> and, uh, a little bit, little bit of vision or bewilderment on the, on the behalf of record executives. But, uh, so yes, we have a Minnesota boy written, uh, the song written by Prince produced by Prince and the revolution and recorded down in St. Louis park, a twin city suburb at a place called the warehouse in the summer of 1983. And these were the days where you release seven inch and twelve inch singles, so that you can have something to play in the clubs. And um, uh, the album version is four minutes and thirty eight seconds. The single was cut down a little bit to three forty six, and then there was an extended version for the clubs that went seven over a little over seven and a half minutes. But uh, right. you have an experience with a LM one uh, a Lynn drum machine at all? Have you ever seen one of those? I have not seen one of those, but uh, I I saw this in the notes, and I'm like, um, apparently that was his favorite <laughs> because it's well, know. and it's I, I've looked at you know, I've looked for them online. Mm-hmm. They're fairly pricey deals, especially the classic ones. But um, I always noticed, you know, fr- from very early on that Prince's stuff, yeah, used drum machines, but it used them in a way that was very organic. So, so for a guy that was very much into funk. And rock, which requires, you know, some swing to it and, and uh, some feel, it didn't, his stuff doesn't sound electronic. And, you know, that there are, there's a lot of music out there that uses drum machines that's very just straightforward, mechanical, sure. you know, and that's part, oh, yeah. that's part of the whole, the whole thing. But you don't get that out of Prince's stuff. He, he loves sitting around and programming that, that drum machine, man. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty, you know, uh, like you said, organic, but uh, so... For the musicians, Prince is on uh, lead vocals, guitars, and keyboards. Bobby Z, the Z Man's on drums. Mark, uh, actually, Brown Mark, I'm sorry, <laughs> Brown Mark's on dr- uh, bass. Wendy's on guitar. Lisa Coleman's on keyboards, and Doctor Matt Fink's on the keyboards. You're Facebook friends with him, right? I am Facebook friends with Fink and Wendy and uh, Lisa. <laughs> isn't it amazing the world we live in oh yes i'm i'm facebook friends with them <laughs> yeah i'm sorry along with I, I i am yes hello i'm mick i am friends with lisa and wendy and Dr. <laughs> yeah Who would have thought years ago yeah along with fifty thousand other people right. or however exactly many but, <laughs> i'm friends with them i know them personally <laughs> So uh, let's go crazy. Hit number one, and it was uh, you know the first of a number of number ones that that Prince would go on to have. But uh, um, it was it was his first. It wasn't his first album, it, you know, by a long shot. And it wasn't even his first hit um, no. because we had already had 1999 by this time. Um, but uh, all cylinders kind of were firing for this project, and and uh, everything came through. Um, lyrically, and Prince always, you know, had this interesting streak of both sexuality and religion running through his lyrics. And a lot of people will say, don't, you know, the elevator, don't let the elevator take you down. Well, no, it's D-elevator, D-E, D-elevator, something that keeps you from being elevated. And wow. it's, it was his way of, it was his way of saying the devil, or Satan. So don't let D elevator take you down. Um, you know, which most people are like, man, he's talking about an elevator, right? You know, it's no, this is not a Steven Tyler type of elevator. Yeah. Um, Different elevator. (laughs) You know, the D this is the D elevator and the D elevator is, is a personality is a, is a, you know, a persona for the devil. And the whole thing is about, you know, so when the when the D elevator tries to break you down, go crazy. You know, get nuts, reach for higher ground, you reach for something higher. So it really is a very religious song, which I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize when they're out there, sure. you know, cracking it on the dance floor. But uh, 
Being a Minneapolis boy, when uh, Green Day came through Minneapolis in 2009, um, and Green Day is known for just pulling out stuff based on the crowd yelling things at them, but uh, when they stopped in Minneapolis in 2009, they did do, they had actually rehearsed, and they did do Let's Go Crazy, and I do have a bit of that from The Vault. very faithful <laughs> faithful rendition of let's go crazy by uh that's billy joe singing there you know um doing a, a reasonable uh reasonable prince imitation almost you know the same same cadence to his words and everything so pretty good you know? as far as i know that was the only stop on the tour that they ripped into that and they've been known really? to yeah. they've been known to you know do one-offs here and there sure. but um from what i could find that was the only time they actually did let's go crazy and that the sound is a little off on there because, of course, it's from somebody's video camera, you know, out in the out in the audience. But yeah, uh, little... but at least it got captured. Well, and I've never heard that. And, 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 and of course, you and I being from that area and being uh, baseball fans, the Minnesota Twins have played that song when a Twins player hits a home run uh, since they moved to Target Field in 2010. You know, and it was, you know, in a nod to Prince uh, roots in Minnesota. So if you ever get a chance, you should go to target field. It's a I should. beautiful, beautiful place to see a game. And you've been there. Awesome. Been there a couple of times. times and uh, yeah, a couple of times. Um, it's just a really neat place to go see a game. And it's totally different from seeing a game in the Metrodome, which I was at quite a number of times as well, but uh, very, very different feel. Just, it's a beautiful stadium. Right, and then which I didn't know is during Game Six of the first round of the uh, Stanley Cup hockey series, the Dallas Stars, uh, which the Minnesota Wild used to be, uh, used "Let's Go Crazy" as their goal song as a part of the series uh, attributes to Prince that night, and uh, they ultimately. Uh, chose to make this the permanent for the 2016-17 season when they uh yep yep scored whenever goal. they would whenever they would score a goal I, I thought it was kind of interesting that yeah that so we lose the minnesota north stars they go to dallas become the dallas stars we get a new we get a new team eventually the minnesota wild and then they end up playing each other <laughs> in the playoff series yeah yeah <laughs> and, uh, it doesn't say here i'm pretty sure that the uh Oh, wow. Lost that series, but <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm almost certain yeah. there's, there's no, there's no cup that has ever been uh, held aloft here. So nope, <laughs> <laughs> not that kind of cup anyway. The, the cup <laughs> is emptieth. Yep. All right. All right. We're going to, we're going to ride out on a little bit of the Arsenio Hall performance uh, of Prince and the Revolution. Or actually, I think this might've been a later Power, band. Uh, New power generation, power station? I think. Or, uh, new power generation. <laughs> new power generation. Power? So many confusing <laughs> names. Power station? What? <laughs> we'll be right back after this break. Time after time If you fall I 
I don't know. It sounds like some fools in the background clapping along with the song. Uh, that was uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> it's internet radio. You'll never know. That's right. <laughs> That's the beauty so of it. So I remember what, I remember in 83 when She's So Unusual came out. And talk about it. It's a really strong album. Classic cover. You know, with, with Cindy just rocking it out and looking just wilder than heck. Yep. And, and hot. Uh, and hot. I, I, I thought yes, she was hot. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> we're just going to there was, that out there. But yeah. there, was a, there was a bit of debate here about whether the, the record company, company really wanted Time After Time released as the first single. Hmm. And Cindy kind of fought against that, saying, if you come out with a, with a ballad as your first song, as your first big publicity push, you're going to be pegged as a ballad person, you know, from then on. So she really fought to have girls just want to have fun come out first, which it did. And so sure. they released that and she was just this nut on MTV and people just were like, wow, she's kooky and she's fun, fun, but they didn't necessarily expect a lot from her. Then it was so much stronger when time after time comes out next and people go, oh, she's got range, you know, because people are always going to be a sucker for a ballad, but she came out and had such a good hit with uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun and then to come out on the other end with Time After Time, you know. Wow. So that was actually calculated on her part. And it turned out she was right. Tell me a little bit about the she history right. of how this song came together. Because you knew, you knew before I did, and, and I was big fan yeah. of these guys beforehand, too. I just never realized they were involved in this album. Yeah, so... Uh when this came out, uh, Lopper co-wrote the song in the final stages with uh, Rob Hyman, who was the founding members of, of the Hooters. So um, it was Rob Hyman, and I cannot remember the other guy's name, but so basically it's the Hooters that backed this up. And um, they were close uh, to mixing the album, but uh, the producer, Rick uh, Chardoff, thought they were, you know, use one more song. And so Hyman said, well... We never did a demo of the song, but we just kind of bashed it out and and played piano over it, and and that that's kind of how it happened. But I was a huge Hooters fan, and when I found out that they were uh, basically her backing band on that, <clears throat> so I, I will add to that when they when she went live in '83, uh, Sandy Gennaro, who's a drummer that I, I worked with with. Um, uh, some other bands, he was the live drummer with her for like seven or eight, eight years. And so it's, uh, so there's always a connection. You, know, you, you have a connection in there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was done so late and, you know, late, she and late, Rob, late she, she and Rob had just, yeah, had just met for, for this, this, uh, thing because, um, gosh, what was the name of her band before this? Blue Angel, I think. Uh, yep. And, and uh, they had broken up. She didn't have musicians. Um, Rick Chertoff recommended um, Rob and Eric, I think, from uh, from the Hooters. And and Rob and Cindy were just sort of getting to know each other. But anyway, they got they got to the end of the recording sessions, and Rick really thought they, boy, it's a strong album. You, you put one more in there, and so they sat down and they rather than doing demos which they had been doing all through the recording process you know demoing things and trying it different ways they basically went right to the 24 track machine and started laying this thing down and you know rob hyman says the demo is what you hear that was our demo of time after time that was the, <laughs> there was no there was no other real recording of it wow. So clocks in, clocks in at a shade over four minutes and uh, got Cindy her first number one. And that ain't bad. <laughs> that ain't bad. Okay. The uh, lyrical meaning? No, talk about the musicians. There's, well, I mean, okay. there's, not, there's not much to say, but uh, the, the one that, that you, the Eric is Eric Bazillion. Is that it? Bazillion? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So he and, he and Rob Hyman basically they were did the all the yeah, they were, the, you know, the, the core of the Hooters, and, and they did, Rob did some of the vocals along with Cindy, and then Rob and Eric, between the two of them, filled the guitars and keyboards for the recording. And I don't know, some of the, the drum stuff sounds like it's programmed to me, like on Time mm -hmm. After Time, it sounds like it's programmed anyway, but... Uh, right. 
So you have to give some credit there to Rick Chertoff, the producer, as, as almost a, a member of the band, you know, for pulling in those elements and pulling them all together. So it's her first number one song? The first number one song. And then uh, the, the lyrical meaning, you know, uh, Rob Hyman says, well, they, they were just kind of getting to know each other. And so at this point, they were just going through personal relationships and some personal things that were, were meaningful and deep to them. And somehow that's how the lyrics just came out. And that's, there you go. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> jazz great Miles Davis covered this song, actually covered it quite a bit wow. in, con- in concert up until his death. Really? Um, had a, had a real soft spot for this. So and yes, I did. <laughs> I, I did go down into the vaults and, and, uh, it's it's a very straightforward, respectful cover almost, and uh, you know he didn't he didn't go way out there on it, but he loved the song and he played it at almost every appearance until his death. Wow! Wow! I mean, it's very, wow. you know, he, he really tries to work with the phrasing, you know, of, of that melody and seemed to have a real soft spot for it. Wow. Yeah. And was very, <laughs> uh, very drawn to the song and it wasn't just a one-off for him. So I thought that was interesting and I had never heard that before. And Cindy was pretty thrilled by that, you know, as far as, hey, it's Miles Davis, you know covering me yeah that, that's a pretty good compliment i mean yeah there was there's an interesting story that okay so as they're putting together they had some of the phrases um f- for the song and, and they had the basic melody and they were working on it and they needed sort of a placeholder uh to sing where the chorus came in because they didn't know what they, it was actually going to be or what they were going to call it and so Cindy Lauper picks up a TV guide magazine and she's flipping through it, looking at all these different movies. And of course, there's a Christopher uh, Reeve movie called Time After Time. I'm not sure if you remember that movie or not. Um, but uh, she's looking through it and she sees Time After Time and it just had the right beats to it. And so she she was just filling in the whole Time After Time just as a vocal placeholder for what the lyrics should be there. And by the time they had gone through and structured the track so much, it was like she couldn't pull that out without just the whole track unraveling. And uh, so the song, the song became time after time, sort of accidentally at first, you know. Wow. uh, Tell me a little bit about the Hooters as long as we're on them before we. Well, see, as long as we're on, 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 sorry, as long as we're on the Hooters. So the writing began uh, with the title, because, like like you said, with, with the TV Guide magazine. And then uh, Rob Hyman and Eric Bazilian, we think, uh, had several hits with the Hooters. And that was, uh, and we danced in Day by Day. And I was a huge Hooters fan. So I, I just love those guys. I was too. I And and We Danced was one of my favorite songs ever. Yep. And what was that? A melodica? What is that little key, keyboard thing you blow into? Uh, that was, nope. That, I think... Oh, see, now we're going to have to Google that. That is a, a vocoder, right? No, no, no. No, it was a handheld little key thing that, that you goes blew into in. A, yep, that goes into no, a keyboard. You blew, no. <clears throat> Through the magic of internet radio, we took a short break. Yeah. And we did look up a melodica, and it definitely is a, a uh, human air-driven handheld keyboard instrument and uh, that was the sound on and we danced by the hooters <laughs> but boom and with that you <laughs> will <laughs> 
Jimbo, I'll take this one. All right. <laughs> I, it's all yours, because, man. Because he's like, yep, because he's like, what? And I said, come on, man. You got to give me some rat and roll. This came out, I believe, in like March. It came out in the springtime. So I, I was a senior in high school and I saw this album and, and I heard this song. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. So, you know, to me, so it's everybody has their songs, but. Uh, the song w- 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 was written by uh, Warren Demartini, who's a guitar player, Stephen Percy, who's uh, the singer, and Robin Crosby, who I'll kind of talk about. Robin, uh, unfortunately, passed away a-, a couple years ago, but he was the nephew of Bing Crosby, or I believe he was the, the nephew. So there's some connections in-, in there, too, that I'll talk about, but... Uh, it is their debut album, Out of the Cellar, Rat. Uh, the musicians are Stephen Percy on vocals, Warren Martini on lead and rhythm guitar, Robin Crosby on lead and rhythm guitar, Juan Trochet on bass and uh, vocals, and Bobby the Blotz Blotzer on drums. So The Blotz. <laughs> it's the Blotz. So. Uh, you know me, I'm known as the Blotz. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like a beer. <laughs> oh, that's Blatz. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so, uh, actually, Round Around uh, was their biggest hit of, the, of of their career. It reached number twelve on a Billboard uh, Hot 100 in 1985. Lay It Down reached number forty, and so I'll just segue in, into. After you left the band, which were the times, which became the view, which became We Rocks, we used to do a uh, rap medley. And so we did lay it down and round it around. I remember you guys doing Lay It Down. Mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing you do that someplace. I don't remember round and round, but. Uh, yeah, I think we my, had. My memory of the time is a little hazy, so. Well, <laughs> there could have been some things involved in that. But yeah. Um, so. Is there, any, is there anything deeper than round and round, level, find a way, just give it time? Well, yeah. What's the lyrical meaning? Come on, kids. It's the it's the 80s. It's hair bands. It's Aquanet. Who cares? But And, and what does all that have to do with the video? <laughs> okay. See, so, so, so you ask, because here's, like, like I said, Robin was, I believe, a uh, nephew of uh, Bing Crosby, but... In in the uh, uh, video, a, a a girl mutates from human form to rodent form in the video, which features an unlikely character, uh, a cameo character, Milton Berle, because Milton w- was in there because he was uh, the band's uh, manager was his nephew. So, and of course, Milton is dressed free charge as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Milton Berle took several opportunities during his career to um, to dress and drag. I've seen yeah, more than that, one. <laughs> I don't think that was the first time that he had dressed. No, and drag, I think right? I think that's pro- probably where the idea came from. Was that he's he, he had done that before? So. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man! But what's kind of funny is so the vixen in that video, uh, Lisa Dean, a few years later played the girl in Michael Jackson's Dirty Diana. So she becomes Dirty Diana. Mm. She, she gets to both morph into a rodent for Rat and then be Dirty Diana for Michael Jackson. Right. So here's my uh, Go ahead. here's my Rat recollection. <laughs> so Rat played Fargo in, I think it was like 92, uh, at the uh, fairgrounds at, at the racetrack. And that was the first time uh, Stephen Percy... 
that, that was the first time, I was still fairly young, that was the first time I ever heard somebody use the F word in full sentences. And that was the only thing that he ever said to, to the crowd. <laughs> and I was fairly impressed. And unfortunately, Robin Crosby, <laughs> I'm like, wow, he just said the F word like 900 times. And that was the only thing that he said. Robin Crosby was not happy to be in Fargo. Uh, he mm. came up. He came up to myself and to uh, my good friend Dave Huber, and said, "I can't believe that I'm in Fargo, and where can I get some party materials?" <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, "Wow, dude, you're in Fargo." <laughs> and so you said, "You said that. You said that'll shorten your life, man." Yeah, and see, apparently, so. But uh, uh, that yeah, was uh, so. <laughs> you're out at the Fargo Fairgrounds, going, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> this isn't New York City, is it? No, you're like, <laughs> wow, we hit the big time. So I mean, but I, I, I was a huge rap fan, even kind of after that, because I, I had worked with him after that too. But you know, Robin had some problems. But it was amazing that Stephen Percy could use one word through many sentences and that was the only thing that he said <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my man. god yeah. yeah all right well with that we're going to be back in a few minutes and i'm going to hit you with some trivia yes It's time for some trivia. Some of these are going to be very, very easy, but I have some interesting side information to them. Oh, cool. Some of these might not be as easy. So, January 21st, 1984, this band, so you're looking for the band name, hits number one. This band formed in 1968. Oh. It took them until 1984 to get a number one hit. The song, Owner of a Lonely Heart. The band is... Really? Wow. Yep. Uh, hold on. Uh, yes. The, yes, that is correct. Yes! So, yeah, Yes had been around forever. I mean, John Anderson and Chris Squire uh, formed it. Right. And, uh, yep, they played their first show in 1968. They opened for Cream... Later on in 1968, at their at Cream's farewell concert from Royal Albert Hall, so, and then wow. of course they wrote "Owner of a Lonely Heart" with members Trevor Rabin, who you may remember yep. from uh, yes, uh, yeah, <laughs> who you remember from playing with uh, the Buggles yep. for a bit before before joining Yes, so um, yeah, and this <laughs> that this was song appeared is that their only first, number one hit. Probably. I believe so. Yeah, that would be it as far as I know. Um, so, yeah, and uh, it appears in the video game Grand Theft Auto Vice City. So, <laughs> Really? <laughs> yep. Well, I have to ask my son about that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he, he probably knows that song. <laughs> He'd probably know that. There you go. All right, number two. Okay. On February 4th, 1984, The Culture mm. Club... Oh. Had their only their only U.S. number one hit. Yes. Do you want me to not <laughs> give you some choices? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm trying to think. So it would have been the first one. <clears throat> it's not Karma Chameleon. So it's so I need some choices. It is Karma Chameleon. Is so it I'm really? Not give you any choices? Yay! Yes. <laughs> Look at me. The only, I mean, the other ones were "Miss Me Blind." Do you really want to hurt me? Which right, could really, have been yeah. could have been another choice. Yes, and I'll I'll tumble for you, which is a, a right. funny song, fun song, but I don't think it ever. I do remember tried, tried, didn't uh, turn it that high. I do remember Chemical Chameleon on MTV. It it set like in the eighteen hundreds. Remember with the gals yeah, with the, yeah yeah. I thought it was yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
Back when back when MTV was cool. Yeah. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. February 25th, 1984, Van Halen tops the charts with Jump. Yes. In which country were Alex and Eddie Van Halen born? Ooh. Ready? Okay. No. Um, no uh, clues needed. Okay. As long as I get this right. God dang it. <laughs> um, <laughs> where is not Denmark? It is where can you go get uh, <laughs> where can you go get free hookers in a uh, weed? <laughs> yeah. It is, it is the Netherlands. It is okay. the Netherlands. Okay, <laughs> so, so no, they were born in the Netherlands. Well, I <laughs> they were born in they were born in Amsterdam. Yep. So, Amsterdam, yeah. see? That's that's what that's what, what you were searching. That's what you were searching for there. Yep. yep. Well, yeah, free weed and hookers. Yep, Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you did you know how David Lee Roth got into that band? No, but please tell me because that's weird. Well, <laughs> they were they were they were renting a sound system from him, and they could get it cheaper if they let him sing even though he had previously auditioned and had been rejected, but he had the gear. Really? So they were, they were like, Oh, we can, we can have this great gear cheaper if we just let Dave sing. <laughs> it's kind of how Bill Wyman got into the Rolling Stones. He had the amp. He had the amp. Okay. <laughs> well, here's a, here's some reverse trivia then. So when David Lee rented the gear, what was the name of the band? Oh man. Ready? <laughs> I don't remember that. Yep. Well, I, I think when David joined, I believe they were called the Woolly Mammoth. Oh, that could be. Yeah. So that's huh. that's reverse trivia. Well, <laughs> we okay. just don't need a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. In 1984, two singles from the Footloose soundtrack made it to number one. Kenny Loggins hit the top spot with Footloose in March. Which other song from Footloose topped the charts in May? I'm going to need choices. Girls just want to have fun. Let's hear it for the boy. Break my stride. We're dancing in the dark. Let's hear it for the boy. Let's hear it for the boy. Absolutely. All right. Which is by <laughs> <laughs> Denise Williams. No, is it? Yeah, is it? Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. See, I, I, I would have known that if I could read faster. Yep. I'm with you. <laughs> All right. Number five. In October, th on, <laughs> on October 13th, Stevie Wonder had a number one hit with I Just Called to Say I Love You. Which movie soundtrack featured the song? <clears throat> Choices. Dang it. I'll give you some choices. Woman in Red, Unfaithfully Yours, Bachelor Party, or The Lonely Guy? Woman in Red. It is Woman in Red. And he actually got an Oscar. Um, he, he got an Academy Award for Best Original Song for, for that. Really? Yep, he did. So go. Stevie Wonder is an Oscar winner. All right. Next one, number six. On July 7th, 1984, Prince released... Oh, this is... Oh, yes, this is actually a good question. Oh. Prince released the first single from Purple Rain. <clears throat> now, we talked about... We, we said that... Um, we said that Let's Go Crazy was the first song on Purple Rain and the first song in the movie. But not the first single. That's, that doesn't mean it's the first single. Prince released the first single from Purple Rain. And what is the title of that number one song? Ready? For double bonus points, I'm going to guess. Right. All right. I think it's When Doves Cry. It is. It is When Doves Cry. Yes! I knew it! What is the unusual thing about that song that uh, that was different for other songs on the radio, probably before and since? Well, until 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 somebody like the White Stripes comes along. Uh, with the uh, let's see, with when doves cry. Hmm. Yeah. Um, What's even interesting about the instrumentation? Something that was there and then was pulled out and gave the song a weird, different kind of sound. The uh, drum track. Nope. 
Dang it. Uh, the vocals? Shall I, just, shall, I just, shall I just tell you? Just tell me. There's no bass on that song. And you said that last time too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> there is there's no there's no bass on that song. And there was a bass track that Prince had put down. And he pulled it out. And then and then he pulled it entirely out. So he just he kinda used it as a scaffold to build the song and then he pulled the scaffold out from under it. So that was that was an interesting piece of uh production logic on Prince's part there. It was just to pull the bass out of uh, When Doves Cry. Hmm. There you go. Number seven. Okay. Tina Turner first hit the charts in the 60s, along with Ike, of course. Yes. <laughs> Singing A Fool in Love. Guess I put some stank on it. <laughs> no. You better enter that go, one out. <laughs> we're not going there. Okay. All right. <laughs> 24 years later, she had her first solo number one hit. So in 1984, she gets her first solo number one hit. Yep. So, what image do you have of Tina on MTV really burning up her first hit, her first Noth number one? Nothing but legs. So, it was from, oh man, she had legs for days. Um, but I, I don't know if it's Tiny Dancer. It, it, I'm thinking it should have been from uh, Max uh, uh, Road Warrior. What the heck was the in that movie, right? So. Yeah. Thunderdome. Yes. Yeah. But the song, I, is it Thunderdome? No. No. Dang it. Whoa. What's love got oh, to do with it? What's love got, oh, man. Yep. Yeah. You were thinking a private dancer, by the way, not tiny dancer. Yeah. Tiny, dan tiny <laughs> dancer. <John>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of Tina John. What? <laughs> Tina John, who? Yeah, shut up. All right, number eight. Yeah. Number eight, movie soundtracks. Movie soundtracks were responsible for a lot of number one songs in 84. Yes, who had a number one with the title song to the movie Ghostbusters? Oh, man. Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> Ray Parker Jr. And he also got an Academy he, he got an Academy Award nomination, but he lost to Stevie Wonder. He also got so. sued. <laughs> yeah, well, he did. <laughs> he lost, he got too, right? He got, well, I think they had to do, um, I'm not quite sure what, what the settlement was, but wasn't that a, want a new drug or something like that from Huey Lewis? Right, so was that the other, I mean, did Huey sue? Because it, it Yeah, was, I believe so. Right. I believe so. Yeah, no, Huey, Huey was the sewer, okay. Okay. and Ray Parker was the suey. I believe he lost. I think he lost, but. Yeah, I don't know if there was just a financial settlement or, or what, but uh, right. and, and you know, and Ray Parker, by the way, even though I mean he had a couple of other hits, but uh, he was a pretty in-demand um, session musician, and really? he worked with when when Stevie Wonder opened for the Stones on the '72 tour. Ray Parker did. Ray Ray no Stevie Wonder did, but Ray Parker played with Stevie Wonder. In that, in his band, opening for the Stones. <laughs> Later, he then he formed uh, Radio, and they had uh, "You Can't Change That." I think was another one. Thanks. But um, but he 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 worked on sessions for the Pointer Sisters, Phil Collins, um, uh, and Elton John. So, wow. interesting interesting career <laughs> the guy had. So yeah, yeah, so. not me. All right. Number nine, one of my favorite early artists. Okay. Early for in, in my adolescence here. John Waite. John yes. Waite had the U.S. Billboard number one song on September 22nd, 1984. What was the title yes, of the song? Did. Ready? <clears throat> I'm going to sing it yes, for you. I am. Why not? Why not? Missing you. I ain't <laughs> missing you. I ain't missing you. All right. You. <laughs> I love that song. Yep. I do too. I do too. <laughs> Yeah, he was working in in America, and uh, his wife was was back home in England, and oh. so he wrote the song "Missing You." Yep. And he's another guy that that uh, wrote a lot of stuff for a lot of other people as well. Yep. And um, okay, so here's let let's do uh, part two of reverse trivia. What band was he in with Neil Schoen from Journey? Oh, what were those guys called? Bad English. No. Look at you, Bing, 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 five. Yes. Oh. 
you can't take it back. <laughs> no, you, no, you had a pause there, and I'm like, oh man, I blew that because I, I, it was just, it came out so fast. Yeah, <laughs> five hundred bonus points to Jimbo. Yep. Uh, yeah, no, he was involved in all kinds of stuff too. Yeah, um, and I just actually, I'm, I'm kind of sad that I, I forgot that that song came out that year because I love that song. So yeah, I do too. All right, and then um, now you know the answer to this question, but then I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a side question in there after you answer okay. it because we, we already talked about it. All so right. Cindy Lauper captured the top spot. What song put her at the top? You you cut out. So we, we're gonna have to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> Darn internet. Yeah. Okay, Cindy. We know that Cindy right. Lauper captured the top spot. Which song put her over the top? We just talked about it. Yep, time after time. Okay, now here's here's the uh, <laughs> here's the question I have for you. Okay. A WWF wrestler appeared in "Girls Just Want to Have Fun" yes. the videos and in the video for "Time After Time," which yes. I watched again today, which is kind of cool. And what was his name? If you can give me ten thousand bonus points, I'm <laughs> I'm all in. Ready? You've got him. I know this. Ready? Okay. Yes. Captain Lou Albano. Captain Lou Albano. Captain Lou. Do, do, do. Yep. yep. <laughs> he became a, a, a bit of a star in his own right just for hanging around with Cindy Lauper. Right after that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's what we have for, uh, for this episode. And you know, as we're fond of saying, we don't make this stuff up. Uh, even <laughs> other than in a, in a pinch, but <laughs> but here's the thing: we, we we don't make it up, and our mom called us and says, "Yes, what happens when you guys run out of songs?" And so I said, "Mom, we'll be back next week because we have not run out of songs yet." So exactly, we'll see you. Ne- we'll see you next week, mom. We'll see you next All week. Right. <laughs> Check out Wikipedia. Check out Wikipedia, Song Facts, the entire internet. You have access to the same world that we have access Songs to. SongsYouShouldKnow.com. Yep. And, oh, yes. And until <laughs> next time. <laughs> <laughs>